Thanks for tuning in to Dark Corner Media. By the way, we are also on YouTube, so if you like pictures instead of just listening, you can also do that. Just search for Dark Corner Media. There is something about a good urban legend that just seems to captivate us. They're rarely full of facts, but the stories are wild tales of impossibilities with just enough truth to keep our interest. Let's break a few down here, starting with the biggest and most well-known urban legend of music. In the air tonight. Let's set the scene. The year is 1978. Genesis just went on hiatus while Phil Collins scrambled to save his marriage. Basically, years of being on the road had chipped away at the relationship, and within a year, it was basically over. While going through the proceedings, Phil settled in to write and record his first solo album called Face Value. And that album was an absolute monster from the very first single. It's a little ditty called In the Air Tonight. Now, it is a very dark song that ominously points to a single person and has some nice highlights of revenge in it. And the dark tone of that song, coupled with the lyrics, well, I think we all know the story, right? But if not, here it is. According to the legend, there was a person drowning in a lake while another person watched but did nothing to help. Phil was also close enough to see what was happening, but not close enough to stop the person from dying. So of course, the only heroic action Phil Collins could take was to write this song, hunt down the jerk that refused to help, send them front row seats to his next concert, and sing this song to them, just like the SOB he is. Now, when you put it that way, it does seem a bit far-fetched, and if you haven't already figured out, it's not true whatsoever. In fact, Collins himself is kind of mystified by the story, saying even he doesn't know what the song is about, going on record to say that the lyrics are just reflecting the anger he felt towards his divorce. Also, I do have to say, the fact that this story became so widespread before the internet, that's impressive. Crossroad Blues now, another really well-known urban legend is that of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And if you didn't know, the original story is that Johnson sold his soul at a crossroads so he could be a famous guitar player. And while that would be a great fit for this video, I kinda wanna do a full video on it in the future. That said, there is another urban legend attached to the story. That's led to the curse of the crossroads which refers to the song Crossroad Blues that Robert Johnson wrote. Now, as the legend goes, if you're covering that song in any way, you might want to have some sort of insurance. For example, Ronnie Van Zant, lead singer of Leonard Skinner, died in a plane crash less than a year after releasing the live album with Crossroads on it. Also, the Allman Brothers, they played that song live at pretty much every concert they had until Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident in 1971. More on him in a bit though. Most famously, you have Eric Clapton. Now, he didn't just record the song. He actually recorded it with almost every band he was in, and that's a countless number of times. He also has a compilation album named after it, as well as a music festival, and even went as far to name a drug treatment center Crossroads. Then, sadly, in 1991, his five-year-old son died in a freak accident, falling out of a 53rd floor window of an apartment building, which of course led to the song Tears in Heaven. And with something as tragic as that, I guess you can say this legend 
could actually have some legs. There is a problem though, as Crossroads is one of the songs that is literally covered by everybody in the blues community. If there truly was a curse on it, we would be in very short supply of blues artists. That alone should bust this urban legend. But before we move on from this, let's back up to Dwayne Allman. Just one more year. Now, there's another legend about this guy that we should discuss. Exactly one year before his death on October 29th, 1970, Dwayne Ullman was rushed to the hospital for a drug overdose. Now, according to the people that were apparently there, he was on death's door. Even emergency doctors didn't hold a lot of hope for his survival. That was when, according to the legend, bandmate Barry Oakley prayed to God and pleaded for just one more year of life for Dwayne so he could play his music and live his dream. And it would seem miraculously, Dwayne Allman defeated death and somehow recovered, much to the surprise of doctors. But again, I, I do have to interject a bit of logic here. There's a couple issues around this story. For starters, yes, he was admitted for an overdose in October, but it was technically on the 30th. Okay, maybe that's splitting hairs. But there's also some speculation as to whether or not the situation was really that dire. You see, the full band played a show the very next day on the 31st. I mean, if this story was true, guessing he might have been held in hospital for at least a couple days, right? So take from that what you will, but with the information at hand, I think we gotta call that one debunked. Mud Shark Incident So at this point you might be asking, are there any really true musical urban legends? Well. Yes and no. Generally speaking, what makes an urban legend is the inability to nail down concrete facts. However, there are a couple stories that are really close, meaning there are actually some sort of clues or accounts that can be corroborated for the story. The first is a really gross one. It's called the Mud Shark Incident with Led Zeppelin. So the story goes that the band had just played the Seattle Pop Festival on July 27th, 1969, and they went back to their hotel, the Edgewater. Now, at this hotel, guests were able to actually fish directly from the rooms, and that's where this gets a little gross. According to the band's road manager, Richard Cole, the band had a groupie tied to the bed naked. And according to this incredibly gross legend, they all took turns stuffing pieces of a mud shark into... Well, her. The true story, though, isn't much different. Apparently, it wasn't even Led Zeppelin. In fact, it was Mark Stein of Vanilla Fudge doing it. And according to sources, it wasn't a mud shark. It was just a red snapper. Feel free to insert your own joke here. And with that, I don't think I will dive much deeper into the facts of this story. If you want, hit up Snopes and read the whole story. I'll link it below. But what ties Led Zeppelin to this tale? Well, apparently John Bonham and manager Richard Cole were in the room at the time it happened. So I guess Cole just thought it would be one hell of a rock and roll story. So we attributed it to his band. Godfather of Soul. He has been called the Godfather of Soul. The Ambassador of Soul and the hardest working man in show business. Of course, I'm talking about James Brown. Now, the story is back in 1987, his wife was facing charges for drunk driving, speeding and trespassing. Those are pretty serious charges. All the while, her defense attorney was claiming that he had heard a US congressman describe James Brown 
as the town's number one ambassador, which meant, and this is where it's gonna get a little crazy, that would mean the ambassador of Seoul and his family should have diplomatic immunity. Yes, that is an actual argument that was used in a United States courtroom, which means, by the way, the story is, sadly enough, actually true. Sad ending to it though, as it would seem according to the judge, being the ambassador of Seoul did not entitle anyone to diplomatic immunity, and, well, the case was lost in the end. Serial killer? Almost got Deborah Harry? All right then, now to finish, I have to touch on my favorite musical urban legend, which is probably one of the creepiest of all time, though it isn't actually proven. This takes us back to sometime in the early 70s. Deborah Harry, the future lead singer for Blondie, was in between bands and living in New York. Now, one particular night, she was in the Lower East Side and tried to hail a cab to get to an all-night bar. A man in a small white car drove up and offered to give her a ride. Now, despite turning him down several times, she finally relented and just got in. Now, according to Harry, it was the middle of summer and once she closed the door, she realized all the windows were almost all the way up and the whole car was stripped inside. There were no door handles or window cranks, meaning she was completely trapped. At this point, she freaks out and somehow got her arm out the window to open the door from the outside. And as luck would have it, she was tossed out of the car as the man was driving around a corner and he accelerated. Several years later, she was flipping through a magazine on a plane when she saw a picture of the man that had picked her up. And according to Harry, that man was Theodore Robert Cowell. Now that name might not ring any bells, but in case you're curious, He's also known as Ted Bundy. Now, there are a few issues with this story. For one, Bundy wasn't on record for killing anyone until 1974, at least officially. Also, he didn't operate in the East. He stayed in and around several Western states, including Washington, California, and Utah. Now, there's actually no record of him being in New York at this time or really any other. But here's where it gets interesting. Bundy is rumored to have started killing people before 1974, and there's actual evidence to point to that. In fact, according to Bundy himself, he started as early as 1969. In his statements to the FBI, he actually inferred that prior to 1974, he was already working towards becoming a serial killer. That makes this story even creepier. But what about the car? Well, in 1975, a police officer noted that the front seat had been taken out, so there's further evidence that he was willing to change the interior of his car to suit his needs. Okay then, what about the fact that he was never actually in New York? Well, this is where it might be a bit of a stretch. You see, in 1972, Bundy was hired onto the Republican re-election campaign for Governor Daniel J. Evans later hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. But why is that important? Well, that job did require some travel. And we know he did some travel into California in 1973. So it's not much of a stretch to think he may have gone east at some point, maybe even as far as New York. Now, regardless of the facts, there's very little reason to doubt Debbie Harry and whether or not she got into the car with Ted Bundy or some other weird freak who looked like him. It's a good bet though, that she had luck on her side that night. Hi, I'm Kyle.
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.